If you would, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. And you should have a packet that you receive coming in here, or if you're using the, the app, you can use that. Those online, it will probably come up on the uh, should come up on the screen as well. Uh, hopefully, follow along, give a little bit of overview of the book as well. So, talking through Hebrews, like many others of our pastors, I've decided to try to start choosing a book and just stay going through it. So, uh, I decided to start in the book of Hebrews and got into it and. The commentators all started talking about how it was difficult, and no one was fairly sure how to understand it, and I thought this was a really poor choice, uh, but we're too late. We're in it now. So we're going to do Hebrews, um, and the theme that we're going to talk about, the series, the focus of this whole series in Hebrews is going to be staring at the sun, S-O-N, staring at the sun to see life clearly. Your, your mother, if she was like mine, always told you, you know, don't look at the sun, it will make you go blind. Uh, that's true, physical sun, but... For us in our Christian walk, the author of Hebrews tells us, demands of a stare at the sun, the S-O and the Son of God, that you, that you might see life clearly, that you might live and know how to live and do well and, and live this life with purpose. And so f- for that, we're going to start with the introduction of the book. Here we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you would stand with me in honor to God's word, we'll read this together. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is far more excellent than theirs. Let me quickly pray for us. Father, we we do pray that you would show us Christ. We have been singing songs about our wonderful Savior, about Jesus. Would you reveal him to us, delight our hearts as we look into your word, that you would show us him, let our our hearts be burning within us. We think of what it says of of those who walked with Christ on the road to Emmaus as as he's revealing himself to them from all the scriptures, that that our hearts not burn within us, that that would be true for us as we look at Jesus today. We pray this all in his wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. The author of the book of Hebrews, we're really not sure who it is. There's a lot of people that would think it Paul. Some think it Apollos. Uh, but we're really not certain for sure who the author of Hebrews is. There are a few things we are sure of, though. The author really seems to be Jewish. Uh, he seems to have a great grasp of the Old Testament and has a masterful use of it. He quotes numerous passages, sometimes very obscure and small little areas of the Old Testament he will take and use to give huge arguments for what he's stating. And on top of that, he actually gives us some commentary. Some of these passages we look at and be like, I'm not sure what this is saying. He actually expands it for us and gives us a better understanding of God's word because of his use of the Old Testament. We also know that he has a deep love for the Lord and for God's people as is evidenced in his writing. The book itself is written as an exhortation. Chapter 13, verse 22, he he writes, "But, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Uh, briefly 13 chapters long, that is, right? This is not a, a John epistle. This is a long, brief letter. But he says his goal is exhortation. 
The, the book flows in its progression with little exhortations throughout and then culminates in the last number of chapters having huge statements, demands upon the lives of believers who would hold to Christ. But, but why? why? Why an exhortation? Why these encouragements to his audience? Well, the audience seems to be Jewish from the way he talks about them, the way he talks to them, the use of the Old Testament he gives as, as powerful uh, presuppositions and, and, and uh, evidences for his statements and arguments. They, they are probably proselytes here, proselytes from Judaism to Christianity. And as such, they're ostracized from everyone around them. And the Greco-Roman culture around them would reject Christ. They think this is some sort of a cult of a, a weak God who would die on a cross what sort of a God dies? Their God lives, is exalted, and so they reject this as some foolish thing to be held to, a cult. The, the Jews reject Christ and these Christians because they consider it blasphemy. You would call this man, this, this Jesus, God. What blasphemy is this? And so they are rejected by all the cultures around them. They, they have no real family unit left for them, no cultural connection other than their own within the church. And they're suffering because of this for their faith in Christ. They've lost relationships with those around them, many even family. They've lost prestige and places of prominence they once held in their communities. They've lost wealth and many earthly possessions that have been taken or destroyed. They've lost freedoms. They've been sent to jail, ostracized. They've lost their voice, their ability to interact in their societal sphere. They've lost their rights, their things the ability to speak, their livelihoods, the ability to defend themselves. And they now have this fear that they might lose their very lives after all this other stuff has been taken. And they're beginning to think about giving up. They're doubting whether God is, is really worth it. Is he really worth all this? They're, they're thinking about going back to their old way of living. It's like the Jews going back to Egypt for it was better than at least we had these things. But, the, but they're looking at this and saying it's so hard. It would be more easy, more comfortable to just go back. We'd be acceptable to our society and those around us. We wouldn't be ostracized. It's what we've always known. It's what we're, we're comfortable with. We've always had this. We could just go back. They become complacent and willing to look for lesser joys. Than Christ himself. They're considering turning from Christ who has brought all these pains into their lives because they've forgotten that he alone is the only true source of their lasting joy as well. They don't realize that to turn from Christ is to turn from the very thing they long for most. God himself. Their greatest joy. They would agree with David in Psalm 84.10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere but would be content with just the courts rather than God himself. And they're starting to turn away from looking at Christ. And the author here seeks to exhort and encourage them to turn back, look at him, stare into his wonderful face, look at the sun that you might live. And so that's our main idea, what we're going to talk about today. If you're taking notes or if you have those note sheets that were given to you, our main idea, knowing that Christ, the perfect Son of God, is the ultimate message and means for bringing us into an eternal relationship with the Father should cause us to respond with lives pleasing to Him. 
I'll say it again, it's sort of a mouthful. Knowing that Christ, the perfect Son of God, is the ultimate message and means for bringing us into a relationship with the Father should cause us to respond with lives pleasing to Him. From that statement, we're going to draw four main truths. Uh, Here's the word, Son, Message, Means, and Response. Four truths from that statement. Son, Message, Means, Response. If it helps you, it's, it's summer without the vowels. Son, Message, Means, Response. And we have that breakdown. You got that breakdown in your notes there. The author starts with Christ being, being the best. He, he, he says he's better. He's be- better. He's the best. He's the ultimate. He's the, the only message for how to come to God. And he focuses on that in chapter 1 through chapter 4, 13. He says that Christ is, is the best. He's, he's better. He's, he's the best. He's ultimate. He's the, the only means of how to come to God. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 10, 25. And then he ends with this exhortation, based on these truths, here's how you as a believer should respond in chapter 10, 26 to the end. And you can see that list of hope, faith, endurance, worship and works, worship and words. And we're, we're going to walk through this outline just to see this in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, to just see the start of this, how he gives sort of an introduction to the letter. So you go there if you haven't already been there, if we haven't read with us. We're going to talk through those four truths. Son, message, means, and our response, starting first with Christ, is the perfect son. Verses 1 through 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. He says we have this son the Son of God. He says he's the heir of all things. It is the picture of a king preparing his son, the prince, to one day rule the kingdom that he will pass on to him. He owns it all, but the full realization of that is yet to be seen fully. We do not confuse his lack of work in ways we think he should with his inability, for he is all-powerful. He is the heir to all of it. It speaks to doubt. Look at the world around us and see the things crumbling and the mess. We recognize, well, it's not because Christ is not in control, for he is the heir. But we should long for the day of his coronation as king, the final realization when all will be made right. It says not only is he the heir of all things, but he is the one who made all things. It's fitting that the one by whom all things were created gets to be king of all of them. That his coronation will take place as he is the owner. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 writes, In the beginning was the Word, it's Christ, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. Christ is the author of all, the maker of all. As the Son of God, he is the heir to all. The author of Hebrews views Christ's divinity as a given or a foregone conclusion in much of the way he writes about it. He doesn't focus much on it. He calls him the Son of God. It's the title that the demons called Christ. Those who knew who he was when he came into contact with him, they called, said, Do not cast me out, O Son of God, Son of the Most High God. They recognize the deity of Christ. His divinity is demonstrated throughout the Gospels by his miracles. 
His demonstrations of his authority as the, the creator to control his creation. The calming of storms. The casting out of demons. The healing of the sick. And if that were not enough, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews goes on. He's going to talk more about this, and we'll get there later times when we go through Hebrews. But just verses 8 and 9 talks about this. It's, it's quoting God. It says, but of the Son, he says, the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. You have God the Father speaking to God the Son and saying, you are God. Christ's divinity is assured here. The creator of all life, Christ is God himself. The Son waits to see the full realization of his kingship now. But before his present waiting that he's going in right now, that he's going on right now, he was preparing the world for this time. And that leads us to the second one. Second point, we had son, we're talking about the message. Christ is the better, the best, the only, the ultimate messenger because he is the message. Uh, look at verse 3. It says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Before this, in, in verses 1 and 2, he's talking about God spoke. God spoke to the fathers and the prophets. He, he used visions and dreams and angelic beings to speak to the prophets. But it says, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He's come directly to us. Well, we're not having to have other things tell us, not going through, through just a human being, but we have the divine coming to us. It says, Christ is the radiance of God's glory he is God, shining forth, radiating out, not a mere reflection of God. He is not the moon to God, the sun, reflecting his glory. He is the very sun itself, pouring forth his light upon us. Perfect, pure light of God. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It says not only is he the radiance of God's glory, he is the exact representation of his nature. He represents God to us. Exodus 33, 20, God tells Moses, you cannot see my face, Moses, for, for no man can see me and live. So, so God the Son took on flesh that he might fully represent God to us, that we might live and see him. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. We, he has explained him to us. Christ came to explain, to show the Father to us. He is all the characteristics and attributes of God as God himself. But as a man, he's able to be seen, touched, heard, interacted with on a human level. The divine creator of all takes on the form of his lowly creation that he might bring a message to us while we would not listen to him and completely ignored him. When, when, when we would not and could not come to God, he came to us. The author goes on, he upholds all things by the word of his power. 
It could be literally translated, upholding all things. Christ not only spoke the world into existence by his word, but is continually keeping it and holding it together by his word. The natural laws of the universe, the scientific findings and reduplications we're able to do only exist and only continue because Jesus tells them to. Because his spoken word keeps them. The planets are in orbit because Jesus says they should be. Our cellular structures are held together because Christ speaks them as such. What better messenger could you have than the one who holds this power with his word? What better message could you have than the word proceeding from his lips? There is none. There is no other. He is the best, the only messenger, the ultimate messenger. And the, the book of Hebrews talks about this. That's, that's the focus of chapter 1 through 4, verse 13. It says he's a better messenger than angels. These angelic beings sent from God, the awesome power that people fall down and would worship even these angelic beings. And they say, don't, 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 we're not God. He is better than them. He's God himself. He is the message. And then it ends by showing that he has a better message of rest than Moses could ever offer through the law. A rest that was not accomplished, Christ offers for us is his message. Christ is not just a better messenger. He is the message himself. He is the ultimate messenger. Angels talk about God. Moses presents the law as a picture of God. But Christ is God, demonstrating himself for us, showing himself to us. Third, Christ is the better means, means. Christ is the better, the best, the only, the ultimate means of our coming to God. Look at the end of verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. It says, when he made purification for sins, Notice the past tense there. It's, it's already completed. The author says it's been done. The job is done. The sins have been dealt with and cleansed. How did that occur, though? Christ not only presents the message of how to come to God, he is the means by which we can come to God. Not only does Christ, as God, take on human flesh to represent God to us, he does so that he might bear the guilt and the weight of our sin, and thus God's wrath deserved, poured out upon us. He takes it and bears it upon himself as he dies upon the cross. Not only does he take the believer's sin, he gives them his divine righteousness that they might now be acceptable to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The work of atonement was completed and done. And unless there be any doubt, God gives even more proof of this. Christ was raised on the third day, seen by many, and then ascended into heaven where it says here in the next part of the verse, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His work is completed. The job is done. 
He no longer needs to be standing and moving around. He sits, he rests, his Sabbath has occurred. It points to both the completion of Christ's work and also the merit of it. As he sits in the throne room, in God's presence, God satisfied with him what he's done, awaiting his coronation and his place of power, continually ruling from the right hand, this powerful right hand of God. And not only does it speak of the completion of what he's done, the perfect work, it also perfectly places him there for our mediation. It talks at multiple places throughout the book of Christ being our mediator, our intercessor. He sits next to the Father, able to speak to him on our behalf forever. His work in redemption is not simply completed at the cross, but but it leads to his continued efforts for us as his redeemed people before the throne of God as he mediates and intercedes on our behalf. It says we have the confidence to enter the throne of heaven because we have him there, the right hand of God, our mediator, our intercessor. He goes on, he says, they inherit, he inherited a better name than the angels. He says, having become much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. The, the, the word angel mean, means messenger, sent ones. It says, Christ is far more than just the errand boy. The angels are the servants. God says, go, and they go. Christ is not the servant. He's the son. He is the Lord, the son of God, rather than simply the servant messenger. He's the son of the sovereign, the king. He is the ruler of all and over all. He sits his work accomplished, the price paid, interceding on our behalf ruling in power. And this is what the second part of Hebrews is talking about in chapter 4, 14 through 10, 25. Christ, as this means, it says Christ is the better high priest than, than Aaron and the sinful Levites. He's able to represent God perfectly to us, and he's able to represent us perfectly to God as, as our intercessor. It says he brings a better covenant that will not end because he is eternal. It says he mediates for us in a better sanctuary because he is divine and able to enter where only he could. It says he offers a better sacrifice because he himself is perfect. Where where the the sacrifice of animals were not able to accomplish the blood only was a temporary stopgap, a picture of what was needed. But we have perfect blood shed on our behalf. The atonement made. The perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect covenant, the perfect mediator, our perfect son of God, Jesus Christ, the means by which we come to God. And then the author moves on. Where with all these things in mind, the rest of the book then answers the question, how should we respond to this? Number four, the response. The believer's response to Christ The book has progressed to this. Having seen Christ as as the only message and the only means to the joy of life found in God alone, how should the believer respond? At least two major areas. First, with faith, hope, and endurance. The the author talks about these three, and he, he shows them almost having a symbiotic relationship. They're all connected. You can't have one without the other two. Chapter 10, verse 39, he says, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. 
10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race which is set before us. Have faith in the gospel message that you've heard in the past. Have hope for your eternal glorious home with God in the future and endure through their great, through your great hardships and trials in the present. Faith, hope, endurance. And the second result, he says, that should be in a believer's life is worship. Worship. Worship in our works and in our words. Chapter 12, verse 28 says, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. How? By, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Serve the Lord. Worship in your works. Verse 13, 15, or chapter 13, verse 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Worship words. A person who rightly sees the Son as the message and means of God's salvation naturally should respond in gratitude, living and speaking a life of worship to the King. So, so how does all this apply to us? Where do we go with this? The original audience was tempted to return to Judaism. I'm guessing that's not a huge problem that any of us are facing here. Wanting to go back to our, our Jewish ways and roots. But there are ways, many ways, we are tempted to look away from Christ. Ways we are tempted to, to try to find our joy and purpose for life in lesser things. Rather than looking to Christ foremost and investing our life in Him first, we, we invest our lives into our, our jobs, into gaining social status or standing, into family or friends' relationships. We invest them in, into inquiring things or, or into having social media popularity or as being known as the best in our job or our field of study or academics or sports or talents or, or even just our hobbies. We invest in our comfort, our ease. We invest in our kids, <laughs> being raised to represent us well or, or, or to prosper themselves. We invest in all these things most of which are not even bad, but we invest in them foremost instead of Christ as chief and first. And ultimately, whatever it is for each of us, we are tempted to look away from Christ and put our highest investment into things that, that do not last, things that, that won't matter or benefit our eternal joy if Christ is not central and first. The author of Hebrews' exhortation to his audience is as true for us today as it was for them then. He starts not by a call to action, doesn't call to change in how the believers live for the Lord, but rather he starts by turning and pointing their eyes to Christ. The actions, he says, follow. Based on that, two, two applications for you. What is one truth about Jesus as the Son of God being your message and your means to God you can put in front of yourself this week? Something you can put in front of your eyes to help motivate you to live to please the Lord all the more. One way you could think about him, remember him, and see him clearly. Take some time to think about that. Find a verse maybe. Write it down. Memorize it. 
Stick it on a 3 by 5 card and stick that in a plastic bag. You can take it wherever you go, in the shower even. Something that would remind you the truth about what Christ has done, who he is. Meditate on these truths, staring deeply at the sun. And number two, what is one word or work of worship you can do this week to make much of God for what he's done for you in Christ? Maybe it's sharing the good news of this gospel with someone. The good news that you have tasted of, that God calls you to be an ambassador for. Someone that maybe you've known for a while and you've, you've thought, you've had the Holy Spirit working in you, encouraging you to share with them, and you're like, oh, I don't want to do this. I'm too scared to do this. I'm uncomfortable doing this. That God is calling you, speak. Worship me with your lips. Speak of the glories of what I have done in the gospel. Maybe it's getting baptized. To make a public declaration of your faith in what Christ has done in you for the world to see. For all to know and hear. Maybe it's looking for opportunities to serve others. Showing them the love of Christ in the way it's been shown to you. This gospel love laying down your life for others. It's a, it's a sunny day. Get the sun out. And it's natural to squint and, and shield your eyes from the sun ray, sun's rays. But as you do so, I would encourage you, let that be a reminder. While we do not look at that sun, God gives us that sun as a reminder that there is a sun you are called to stare at intently. Stare at the Son of God that you might live in the light of what he's done for you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our King, our hope. The one who is our high priest who stands in your presence. The one who allows for this very prayer to enter and be heard by you because of his work and because of his mediation. The one who, who makes us acceptable to come into your presence, to talk to you. The one who has brought yourself to us and then brings us to you. The message and the means. Thank you for him. Let us worship. Let us worship with, with lives and lips would submit to you, that would exalt you, that would make much of you, for you are worthy of much praise. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this all because of him. Amen.